0: All right, a quick little thing before we get into this story. This story was written in 1913, and uh, as such, it bears some of the sensibilities of the time. So as you listen to this, there is a lot of racism that kind of flows through it, and one regrettable instance of a bad word, which uh, I left in because it's part of the story and uh, does not reflect... Uh, my feelings or those of the Weird Tales podcast toward anyone in society. So uh, just bear that in mind as you listen to the story. It is rife with racism, which uh, is probably a product of its time. That does not excuse it, that doesn't make it right, but just know that it's there as you listen. Fishhead by Irvin S. Cobb. It goes past the powers of my pen to try to describe Realfoot Foot Lake for you so that you, reading this, will get the picture of it in your mind as I have it in mine. For Realfoot Foot Lake is like no other lake that I know anything about. It is an afterthought of creation. The rest of this continent was made and had dried in the sun for thousands of years, millions of years for all I know, before Real Foot came to be. It's the newest big thing in nature on this hemisphere, probably, for it was formed by the great earthquake of 1811. That earthquake of 1811 surely altered the face of the earth on the then far frontier of this country. It changed the course of rivers, it converted hills into what are now the sunk lands of three states, and it turned the solid ground to jelly and made it roll in waves like the sea. And in the midst of the retching of the land and the vomiting of the waters, it depressed to varying depths a section of the earth crust sixty miles long, taking it down, trees, hills, hollows and all, and a crack broke through to the Mississippi River, so that for three days the river ran upstream, filling the hole. The result was the largest lake south of the Ohio, lying mostly in Tennessee, but extending up across what is now the Kentucky Line, taking its name from a fancied resemblance in its outline to the splay-reeled foot of a cornfield Negro. Nigger Wool Swamp, not so far away, may have got its name from the same man who christened Realfoot, at least so it sounds. Realfoot is, and has always been, a lake of mystery. In places, it is bottomless. Other places, the skeletons of the cypress trees that went down when the earth sank, still stand upright, so that if the sun shines from the right quarter, and the water is less muddy than common, a man, peering face downward into its depths, sees, or thinks he sees down below, The bare top limbs upstretching like drowned men's fingers, all coated with the mud of years and bandaged with pennons of the green lake slime. In still other places, the lake is shallow for long stretches, no deeper than breast high to a man, but dangerous because of the weed growths and the sunken drifts which entangle the swimmer's limbs. Its banks are mainly mud. Its waters are muddied too, being a rich coffee color in the spring and a copperish yellow in the summer and the trees along its shore are mud-colored clear up their lower limbs after the spring floods, when the dried sediment covers their trunks with a thick, scrofulous-looking coat. There are stretches of unbroken woodland around it, and slashes where the cypress knees rise countlessly like headstones and footstones for the dead snags that rot in the soft ooze. There are deadenings with the lowland corn growing high and rank below, and the bleached, fire-blackened girdled trees rising above, barren of leaf and limb. There are long, dismal flats where, in the spring, the clotted frog spawn cling like patches of white mucus among the weed stalks, and at night the turtles crawl out to lay clutches of perfectly round, white eggs with tough, rubbery shells in the sand. There are bayous leading off to nowhere and sloughs that wind aimlessly like great blind worms to finally join the big river that rolls its semi-liquid torrents a few miles to the westward. So, real foot lies there, flat in the bottoms freezing lightly in the winter, steaming torridly in the summer, swollen in the spring when the woods have turned a vivid green and the buffalo gnats by the million and the billion fill the flooded hollows with their pestilential buzzing, and in the fall ringed about gloriously with all the colors which the first frost brings, gold of hickory, yellow russet of sycamore, red of dogwood and ash, and purple-black of sweetgum. But the real foot country has its uses, It is the best game in fish country, natural or artificial, that is left in the South today. In their appointed seasons, the duck and the geese flock in, and even semi-tropical birds, like the brown pelican and the Florida snakebird, have been known to come there to nest. Pigs, gone back to wildness, range the ridges, each razor-backed drove captained by a gaunt, savage, slab-sided old boar. By night, the bullfrogs, inconceivably big and tremendously vocal, bellow under the banks. It is a wonderful place for fish, bass and crappie and perch and the snouted buffalo fish. How these edible sorts live to spawn and how their spawn in turn live to spawn again is a marvel, seeing how many of the big fish-eating cannibal fish there are in foot, Here, bigger than anywhere else, you find the garfish, all bones and appetite and horny plates with a snout like an alligator, the nearest link, naturalists say, between the animal life of today and the animal life of the reptilian period. The shovel-nosed cat, really a deformed kind of freshwater sturgeon with a great fan-shaped membranous plate jutting out from his nose like a bowsprit, jumps all day in the quiet places with mighty splashing sounds, as though a horse had fallen into the water. On every stranded log, the huge snapping turtles lie on sunny days in groups of four and six, baking their shells black in the sun with their little snaky heads raised watchfully, ready to slip noiselessly off at the first sound of oars grating in the rowlocks but the biggest of them all are the catfish. These are monstrous creatures, these catfish of real foot, scaleless, slick things with corpsey dead eyes and poisonous fins like javelins and huge whiskers dangling from the sides of their cavernous heads. Six and seven feet long they grow to be and weigh two hundred pounds or more, and they have mouths wide enough to take in a man's foot or a man's fist and strong enough to break any hook save the strongest and greedy enough to eat anything, living or dead or putrid, that the horny jaws can master. Oh, but they are wicked things, and they tell wicked tales of them down there. They call them man-eaters, and compare them, in certain of their habits, to sharks. Fishhead was of a piece with this setting. He fitted into it as an acorn fits its cup. All his life he had lived on a real foot, always in the one place at the mouth of a certain slough. He had been born there, of a negro father and a half-breed Indian mother, both of them now dead, and the story was that before his birth his mother was frightened by one of the big fish, so that the child came into the world most hideously marked. Anyhow, Fishhead was a human monstrosity, the veritable embodiment of nightmare. He had the body of a man, a short, stocky, sinewy body, but his face was as near to being the face of a great fish as any face could be and yet retained some trace of human aspect. His skull sloped back so abruptly that he could hardly be said to have had a forehead at all. His chin slanted off right into nothing. His eyes were small and round, with shallow, glazed, pale-yellow pupils, and there they were set wide apart in his head, and they were unwinking and staring, like a fish's eyes. His nose was no more than a pair of tiny slits in the middle of the yellow mask. His mouth was the worst of all, It was the awful mouth of a catfish, lipless and almost inconceivably wide, stretching from side to side. Also, when Fishhead became a man grown, his likeness to a fish increased, for the hair upon his face grew out into two tightly kinked slender pendants that drooped down either side of the mouth like the beards of a fish. If he had another name than Fishhead, none excepting he knew it. As Fishhead he was known, and as Fishhead he answered because he knew the waters and the woods of Realfoot better than any other man there. He was valued as a guide by the city men who came every year to hunt or fish, but there were few such jobs that Fishhead would take. Mainly he kept to himself, tending his corn patch, netting the lake, trapping a little, and in season pot hunting for the city markets. His neighbors, ague-bitten whites and malaria-proof Negroes alike, left him to himself. Indeed, for the most part, they had a superstitious fear of him, so he lived alone, with no kith nor kin, nor even a friend, shunning his kind and shunned by them. His cabin stood just below the state line where slough runs into the lake. It was a shack of logs, the only human habitation for four miles up or down. Behind it, the thick timber came shouldering right up to the edge of Fishhead's small truck patch, enclosing it in thick shade except when the sun stood just overhead. He cooked his food in a primitive fashion, outdoors, over a hole in the soggy earth, or upon the rusted red ruin of an old cook-stove, and he drank the saffron water of the lake out of a dipper made of a gourd, faring and fending for himself, a master hand at skiff and net, competent with duck-gun and fish-spear, yet a creature of affliction and loneliness, part savage, almost amphibious, set apart from his fellows, silent and suspicious. In front of his cabin jutted out a long fallen cottonwood trunk lying half in and half out of the water, its topside burnt by the sun and worn by the friction of Fishhead's bare feet until it showed countless patterns of tiny scrolled lines, its underside black and rotted and lapped at unceasingly by little waves like tiny licking tongues. Its farther end reached deep water, and it was a part of Fishhead, for no matter how far his fishing and trapping might take him in the daytime. Sunset would find him back there, his boat drawn up on the bank, and he on the other end of this log. From a distance men had seen him there many times, sometimes squatted motionless as the big turtles that would crawl upon its dipping tip in his absence, sometimes erect and motionless like a creek crane, his misshapen yellow form outlined against the yellow sun, the yellow water, the yellow banks, all of them yellow together. If the real footers shunned Fish Head by day, They feared him by night, and avoided him as a plague, dreading even the chance of a casual meeting. For there were ugly stories about Fishhead, stories which all the Negroes and some of the whites believed. They said that a cry which had been heard just before dusk, and just after, skittering across the darkened waters, was his calling cry to the big cats, and at his bidding they came trooping in, and that in their company he swam in the lake on moonlit nights, sporting with them, diving with them, even feeding with them on what manner of unclean things they fed. The cry had been heard many times, that much was certain, and it was certain also that the big fish were noticeably thick at the mouth of Fishhead Sloth. No native real footer, white or black, would willingly wet a leg or an arm there. Here Fishhead had lived, and here he was going to die. The Baxters were going to kill him, and this day in late summer, was to be the time of the killing. The two Baxters, Jake and Joel, were coming in their dugout to do it. This murder had been a long time in the making. The Baxters had to brew their hate over a slow fire for months before it reached the pitch of action. They were poor whites, poor in everything, repute and worldly goods and standing, a pair of fever-ridden squatters who lived on whiskey and tobacco when they could get it, and on fish and cornbread when they couldn't. The feud itself was of months standing, Meeting Fishhead one day in the spring on the spindly scaffolding of the skiff landing at Walnut Log, and being themselves far overtaken in liquor and vainglorious with a bogus alcoholic substitute for courage, the brothers had accused him, wantonly and without proof, of running their trout line and stripping it of the hooked catch. An unforgivable sin among the water-dwellers and the shanty-boaters of the south. Seeing that he bore this accusation in silence, only eyeing them steadfastly, They had been emboldened then to slap his face, whereupon he turned and gave them both the beating of their lives, bloodying their noses and bruising their lips with hard blows against their front teeth, and finally leaving them, mauled and prone in the dirt. Moreover, in the onlookers, a sense of the everlasting fitness of things had triumphed over race prejudice and allowed them, two free-born sovereign whites, to be licked by a black man. Therefore, they were going to get him." The whole thing had been planned out amply. They were going to kill him on his log at sundown. There would be no witnesses to see it, no retribution to follow after it. The very ease of the undertaking made them forget even their inborn fear of the place of Fishhead's habitation. For more than an hour they had been coming from their shack across a deeply indented arm of the lake. Their dugout, fashioned by fire and adze and draw knife from the ball of a gum tree, moved through the water as noiselessly as a swimming mallard, leaving behind it a long, wavy trail on the stilled waters. Jake, the better oarsman, sat flat in the stern of the round-bottomed craft, paddling with quick, splashless strokes. Joel, the better shot, was squatted forward. There was a heavy, rusted duck gun between his knees. Though their spying upon the victim had made them certain sure he would not be about the shore for hours, a doubled sense of caution led them to hug closely the weedy banks. They slid along the shore like shadows, moving so swiftly and in such silence that the watchful mud-turtles barely turned their snaky heads as they passed. So, a full hour before the time, they came slipping around the mouth of the sloth and made for a natural ambuscade, which the mixed breed had left within a stone's jerk of his cabin to his own undoing. Where the sloth's flow joined deeper water, a partly uprooted tree was stretched prone from shore at the top. Still thick and green with leaves that drew nourishment from the earth in which the half uncovered roots yet held, and twined about with an exuberance of trumpet vines and wild fox grapes. All about was a huddle of drift last year's corn stalks, shreddy strips of bark, chunks of rotted weed, all the riffle and dunnage of a quiet eddy. Straight into this green clump glided the dugout and swung, broadside on, against the protecting trunk of the tree, hidden from the inner side by the intervening curtains of rank growth just as the Baxters had intended it should be hidden when days before in their scouting they marked this masked place of waiting and included it then and there in the scope of their plans. There had been no hitch or mishap. No one had been abroad in the late afternoon to mark their movements, and in a little while Fishhead ought to be due. Jake's woodman's eye followed the downward swing of the sun speculatively. The shadows thrown shoreward lengthened and slithered on the small ripples. The small noises of the day died out. The small noises of the coming night began to multiply. The green-bodied flies went away, and big mosquitoes with speckled gray legs came to take the place of the flies. The sleepy lake sucked at the mud banks with small-mouthing sounds as though it found the taste of the raw mud agreeable. A monster crawfish, big as a chicken lobster, crawled out of the top of his dried mud chimney and perched himself there, an armored sentinel on the watchtower. Bull bats began to flitter back and forth above the tops of the trees. A pudgy muskrat, swimming with head up, was moved to sidle off briskly as he met a cottonmouth moccasin snake, so fat and swollen with summer poison that it looked almost like a legless lizard as it moved along the surface of the water in a series of slow, torpid S's. Directly above the head of either of the waiting assassins, a compact little swarm of midges hung, holding to a sort of kite-shaped formation. A little more time passed, and Fishhead came out of the woods at the back, walking swiftly with a sack over his shoulder. For a few seconds his deformities showed in the clearing, then the black inside of the cabin swallowed him up. By now the sun was almost down. Only the red nub of it showed above the timberline across the lake, and the shadows lay inland a long way. Out beyond the big cats were stirring, and the great smacking sounds as their twisting bodies leapt clear and fell back in the water came shoreward in a chorus. But the two brothers, in their green covert, gave heed to nothing except the one thing upon which their hearts were set and their nerves tensed. Joel gently shoved his gun barrels across the log, cuddling the stock to his shoulder, and slipping two fingers caressingly back and forth upon the triggers. Jake held the narrow dugout steady by a grip upon a fox grape tendril. A little wait, and then the finish came. Fishhead emerged from the cabin door and came down the narrow footpath to the water and out upon the water on his log. He was barefooted and bareheaded, his cotton shirt opened down the front to show his yellow neck and breast, his dungaree trousers held about his waist by a twisted toe-string. His broad, splay feet, with the prehensile toes outspread, gripped the polished curve of the log as he moved along its swaying, dipping surface until he came to its outer end and stood there erect, his chest filling, his chinless face lifted up, and something of mastership and dominion in his poise. And then his eye caught what another's eyes might have missed. The round twin ends of the gun barrels, the fixed gleam of Joel's eyes aimed at him through the green tracery. In that swift passage of time, too swift almost to be measured by seconds, realization flashed all through him, and he threw his head still higher and opened wide his shapeless trap of a mouth, and out across the lake he sent skittering and rolling his cry. And in his cry was the laugh of a loon and the croaking bellow of a frog, and the bay of a hound, all the compounded night noises of the lake, and in it too was a farewell and a defiance and an appeal. The heavy roar of the duck gun came. At twenty yards, the double charge tore the throat out of him. He came down, face forward upon the log and clung there, his trunk twisting distortedly, his legs twitching and kicking like the legs of a speared frog his shoulders hunching and lifting spasmodically as the life ran out of him all in one swift coursing flow. His head canted up between the heaving shoulders, his eyes looked full on the staring face of his murderer, and then the blood came out of his mouth, and fish head, in death still as much fish as man, slid, flopping, head first, off the end of the log, and sank, face downward slowly, his limbs all extended out. One after another, a stream of big bubbles came up to burst in the middle of a widening reddish stain on the coffee-colored water. The brothers watched this, held by the horror of the thing they had done, and the cranky dugout, having been tipped far over by the recoil of the gun, took water steadily across its gunwale, and now there was a sudden stroke from below upon its careening bottom, and it went over, and they were in the lake. But Shore was only twenty feet away, the trunk of the uprooted tree only five, Joel, still holding fast to his shotgun, made for the log, gaining it with one stroke. He threw his free arm over it and clung there, treading water as he shook his eyes free. Something gripped him. Some great, sinewy, unseen thing gripped him fast by the thigh, crushing down on his flesh. He uttered no cry, but his eyes popped out and his mouth set in a square shape of agony and his fingers gripped into the bark of the tree like grapples. He was pulled down and down by steady jerks, not rapidly, but steadily, so steadily, and as he went, his fingernails tore four little white strips in the tree bark. His mouth went under, next his popping eyes, then his erect hair, and finally his clawing, clutching hand, and that was the end of him. Jake's fate was harder still, for he lived longer, long enough to see Joel's finish. He saw it through the water that ran down his face and with a great surge of his whole body, he literally flung himself across the log and jerked his legs up high into the air to save them. He flung himself too far, though, for his face and chest hit the water on the far side. And out of this water rose the head of a great fish, with the lake slime of years on its flat black head, its whiskers bristling, its corpsey eyes alight, its horny jaws closed and clamped in the front of Jake's flannel shirt. His hand struck out wildly and was speared on a poisoned fin and unlike Joel, he went from sight with a great yell and a whirling and churning of the water that made the cornstalks circle on the edge of a small whirlpool. But the whirlpool soon thinned away into widening rings of ripples, and the cornstalks quit circling and became still again, and only the multiplying night noises sounded about the mouth of the slough. The bodies of all three came ashore on the same day near the same place, except for the gaping gunshot wound where the neck met the chest Fishhead's body was unmarked. But the bodies of the two Baxters were so marred and mauled that the real footers buried them together on the bank without ever knowing which might be Jake's and which might be Joel's.